There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. It's great to have you with us again. It's a real pleasure and tremendous honor to have Second Lady of the United States, Karen Pence, as our guest in the first half of today's program. Karen Pence is an educator who earned her bachelor's and master's degree in elementary education from Butler University, an avid supporter of the arts and the healing power of art therapy, and leader in the initiative to reduce and eliminate the national tragedy of suicide among our active duty military personnel and veterans. A former First Lady of Indiana, Karen Pence is obviously the wife of Vice President Mike Pence, the mother of two grown daughters and a grown son, and she's a very proud Indiana Hoosier. Karen Pence, thank you for joining us today in Next Steps Forward. Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. You know, it, it truly is an honor to have you here. We've had a lot of great guests on this show, uh, but you certainly set the high watermark for us today. So again, thank you so much. Thank you. you know, I, I imagine your life has been a bit of a whirlwind the last four years, ever since Donald Trump selected your husband to be his running mate. Being the first lady of a state, as you were in Indiana, is certainly demanding enough, but your schedule and the demands of you are certainly even greater in your current role. Could you just describe to our listeners what it's like to be the second lady of the United States and how you've adapted to this role? Well, thank you for the question, Chris. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's been an interesting uh, last three and a half years. Uh, it certainly was not something that we thought was going to happen in our lives, but um, one of the great things about being second lady is that, uh, you know, I tell people, you know, people take my phone call now, and it's, it's an opportunity for me to elevate some of the causes that are near and dear to my heart. So for me, it's, it's been exciting to be able to do some of the things that um, I've wanted to do for a long time and have some of the opportunities that uh, have presented themselves to me. So, uh, for me, it's it's a great time also in our lives because our children are grown, and so it's something that I can really throw myself into wholeheartedly, and and that's helped to really make a difference in some of the areas that uh, are near and dear to me. You're certainly involved in a lot of great causes, and we will uh, address those shortly. Um, you know, you strike me as someone who's especially grounded. In fact, I understand the first time you left Indiana was when your husband was first elected to Congress in 2000. For our listeners who feel pushed and pulled in so many different directions, especially in today's world of COVID-19 and dealing with all the stresses with that, how do you continue to stay grounded as second lady and, how, and also continue teaching career? Well, you know, I think actually teaching is, uh, is you're right. It's one of the things that has kind of helped me stay grounded. Um, you know, it's, it wasn't something that I sought out as second lady. Uh, this is a school I taught at for 12 years when Mike was in Congress. And then when I went to Indiana to be First Lady of Indiana, um, I really just kind of threw myself into that role. Um, and 
When we came back to D.C., the school that I taught at actually suddenly had their art teacher leave, and so they reached out to me. And I said, oh, well, um, actually, it's a part-time job. It's two, not even two full days a week. And um, the way my staff works, you know, we're a small staff, and it takes them a couple of days just to kind of do all of the advanced work for all the events that I do. And so um, it didn't really affect my role as second lady. They were days when, you know, I probably would have just been doing my own thing anyway. And so for me, it was like, well, this is an opportunity for me to be just regular everyday Mrs. Pence, the art teacher. And I think it does help keep me grounded. You know, I have a boss at school (laughs) and I have 10 teachers that I need to, you know, be accountable to and about 250 students. And so it really does kind of take my mind off uh, maybe what you might say the headiness of being second lady. And it, it's uh, it's really who I am. And I think the other thing that it does for me, Chris, is that it just kind of helps me remember my identity. And, uh, you know, I know we're going to talk a little later in the show about military spouses, but I'm able to talk to these military spouses and say, I understand a little bit of what it's like to have to move because of your spouse's job and then to lose your, um, you know, identity as far as what your career is. And so for me, I think it's been really beneficial to me to have that that safe place, that place where I've taught for years and I have a lot of friends there and it's a community and it's very different from the rest of my week where I'm second lady. Both roles are obviously very demanding and certainly probably one more than the other on any given day. How do you strike that balance between your role as, well, many roles as second lady, a teacher, a parent, and certainly by all accounts, uh, a very valued and important sounding board and advisor for your husband? Well, one of the things I decided when I had this opportunity to go back to teaching, you know, I sat down with the school and I said, you know, this isn't like before where where I'm just, you know, housewife Karen, you know, on the rest of the days. I'm I'm second lady and so that has to take priority anytime um there's something uh, that is demanding of me as far as second lady that happens to fall on one of my teaching days. I I have a, a sub who subs for me regularly. So for me, I, I feel like in this role, it was important for me to be able to still be anytime there was something that I needed to be at a second lady that had to take priority over teaching. And so uh, they were very amenable to letting me do that. But so that's kind of the balance, I think, is kind of I still need to know that if this, in, during this short amount of time, I am the second lady, and that's my highest priority over being art teacher. And so, um, but you know, we're we're kind of a family, Chris. That um, all along, we've kind of made our family our top priority. We try to take Sundays off, and so I think in this busy world that everyone's in, um, you kind of have to set that that boundary of saying, okay, this is our family time and uh, this is our time where we, you know, we we need to be at home as a family and we need to regroup and we need to refresh and, and attend church or take the day off, whatever, you know, each individual family does. But I do think it's important to have that um, kind of that guideline that that you operate from. And for us, it's usually trying to take Sunday off. Now, that being said, 
the vice president doesn't really ever get to take any real time off. He's always the vice president. So, um, but we try and make our family uh, a priority. And I think so for us, that kind of helps us keep that balance. Yeah. Like you said, in theory, keep taking Sundays off is a novel idea, but um, hats off to you and your husband, your family for really targeting that and, and certainly carving some time out for each other. You know, we talked earlier, you. About your passion, we talked earlier about your passion for art. You studied art in college. You have taught art for over 25 years on the elementary level. And you provided illustrations for your daughter's book, which I'd love to hear more about, uh, with Marlon Bundo, uh, the BOTUS, uh, which I love that. <laughs> you know, art, art is something that's obviously very important to you. Where did this love for art come from? You know, it's really a funny story, Chris, because when I was in college, um, you know, I studied as uh, an elementary education major, and I had never taken a single art class my whole life except, you know, what was provided at school. And uh, our counselor at Butler said, you know, you really need to have some kind of minor because you might not always get a job, you know, as a classroom teacher. And so whether you want to be a reading specialist or a language specialist or, you know, art or music or, you know, physical education, if there's something else that you're interested in that you could always have as a backup if you ever can't find a job as a classroom teacher. So art was actually, art education was my minor at at Butler, and I just thought, oh, this would be really fun. I've never taken art. And when I started taking the classes, I, I absolutely loved it. And it did um, actually serve me well. There was a time in Indiana when I couldn't get a job as a classroom teacher, and I did get a job as an art teacher. And then when we moved to Washington, um, they needed an art teacher at my kids' school, and it was a part-time job, and it, it worked out perfectly for me. And what I found was was that I really had an affinity for watercolor. And uh, when we had our first child, um, Monday nights were kind of my night to go out and do what I wanted to do. And, and Mike was home, you know, being uh, dad uh, that night so that I could have a night off. And I started taking these watercolor classes. And I absolutely fell in love with watercolor. And I started doing watercolors of family members' homes. Um, they would send me a picture and say, oh, hey, here's a beautiful picture of our home in the snow. Can you do this? And so I actually started a business. Um, and that was kind of my thing that I did. And the kids, you know, were in school. And, and right about that time, Mike decided to run for Congress. And uh, so that kind of threw our lives into a blender moved to Washington and ended up being an art teacher. But um, it's always kind of been a love of mine to do uh, especially uh, home watercolors. And so our daughter, Charlotte, um, you know, you asked about the book, and our daughter, Charlotte, um, decided that she wanted to do a book featuring our rabbit, Marlon Bundo. And Marlon is a bunny that she got in college. Charlotte uh, majored in digital cinema, and she was doing a film project at DePaul University and in Chicago, and she needed a rabbit for one of her films. And so she went to Craigslist, she found someone with a rabbit, and she went to get the rabbit, and she asked the owner, um, 
she said, you know, how much is the rabbit? And he said, make me an offer. And so that made her think of Godfather, you know, make me an offer I can't refuse. <laughs> so she named Marlon, Marlon Bundo, after Marlon Brando. Um, and so Marlon has been in our family probably about seven years now. And uh, right after Mike was elected to vice president, um, Charlotte said, you know, there are a lot of people who don't really know what the vice president does. I mean, what does he do? Everybody knows what the president does, but what does the vice president do? And so she decided to write a book. And so um, Marlon Bundo has uh, his first book was uh, uh, A Day in the Life of the Vice President. And um, then she wrote A Day uh, in Our Nation's Capital. And then she wrote Marlon Bundo's Best Christmas Ever. But when she wrote the first book, she said to me, Mom, I'd love for you to illustrate it. And I got to tell you, to have your daughter, who who really was an author then, she actually wrote a book about um, called Where You Go, which is about the 2016 campaign. And when she decides, you know, to have me be her first illustrator, it was really very, very touching. And it was just an honor to do it. We had so much fun with it. And Marlon, of course, is is uh, totally into it as well. He would love to pose for certain <laughs> watercolors that I did of him. He's kind of a diva. Um, and it was really, really a lot of fun. So, um, you know, the, the, the watercolor kind of has served me well. And so I still, I mean, just last week I did a home watercolor for a friend of mine. So um, it's something that for me is a great kind of escape. And, you know, that's one of the things that we've said to people during this COVID-19 time, um, find something that you love to do and schedule it into your day. And so for me, it's something that it's just total escapism for me. And uh, it's something that I really enjoy. Well, I'd love to see a watercolor of uh, Bunny of the United States on Air Force Two. So maybe that's something you can do in your spare time. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing. That's a great, uh, great story. You know, so we talk about your love of art and for painting. Another passion for yours, for someone who is so, and I'm going to use air quotes, grounded, is flying. You have your pilot's <laughs> license, though it's not surprisingly not current. Your father was in the Air Force. Your son, Michael, is a pilot in the United States Marine Corps. And you have your pilot's license. Where did your interest in flying come from? Well, you know, actually, it was um, my best friend's dad, and he was my godfather, and uh, they had a home uh, on Cape Cod. They still do. And um, they would go out there for the whole summer, but um, her dad had to still work in Indiana, and sometimes they would invite me to come out for a week or two. And so I got to fly with him in his little plane heading out to Cape Cod, and it just kind of instilled in me a desire to do that. And so um, I think it was maybe after college, right after college, that I decided to get my pilot's license and um, absolutely just loved it. And I... Um, you know, I think, you know, that I like to take credit for my son, Michael, being a pilot now. Um, I only took the kids up probably twice. Um, you know, this was more of a pre-kid kind of hobby. 
uh, first of all, flying is very expensive, and um, you have to keep your license current, and so you have to fly all the time to stay current, and I just wasn't able to do that. But a couple of times, I would take the kids up, and I, you know, if you're not current, you go up with an instructor, and I think they really enjoyed it. I think it was kind of a fun thing um, when they were about elementary age. Um, and then our son just seemed to really have a passion for flying as well. Um, our kids went to public high school that had a great career center, and it was phenomenal. So, uh, you know, my daughter who did the filmmaking, she actually was able to do filmmaking in high school and get a lot of experience and realized that was her passion, storytelling. And it was the same for Michael. Uh, He was able to uh, go as far as soloing in high school. And for him, that that kind of reinforced that this is something that he wanted to pursue. And so when he went to Purdue, um, he pursued flight uh, as uh, his major and ended up doing some instructing at Purdue and then uh, ended up joining the Marines and was fortunate enough to get a flight contract. And um, the rest is history. <laughs> yeah, that's terrific. Thank you. We mentioned your son, Michael, is currently a pilot in the United States Marine Corps. So being an advocate for military and veterans is obviously something very personal to you and your family. Well, considering what causes you a champion in your role as second lady, did you always know that you wanted to have some focus of your advocacy efforts on military and military spouses? You know, that's really interesting because I didn't. Uh, In fact, um, you know, I had a lovely conversation with Melania right after the election, and I said, you know, I'm trying to figure out what I want my initiative or initiatives to be, and she shared that she was going to have one initiative that she was going to focus on, and I started thinking, well, what is my one initiative then if I'm going to pick one thing? And I decided to choose art therapy, and art therapy is um, uh, it's a profession that's very misunderstood. I say everywhere I go, art therapy is not arts and crafts. Art therapy uh, is really um, therapy using art as the medium. And so um, when I was uh, in Washington and Mike was in Congress, I was made aware of a program called Tracy's Kids, which is art therapy for children with cancer. And these children would say, Mom, when do I get to go back to the hospital? And I thought, wow, what what is this program? I've never heard of art therapy. And I started doing a little research into it, and I was fascinated. I later joined their board. I'm not on their board anymore, but um, I was just fascinated by this, this program. When I became First Lady of Indiana, I started seeing how beneficial art therapy can be for our combat veterans who have PTSD, and I started realizing it was very effective. And so when I was trying to figure out what initiative could I bring attention to that would do the most good, I started thinking, I want to start talking about art therapy because people don't understand art therapy. These are master's and doctorate level trained 
therapists. And so I, I started um, reaching out to Walter Reed and learning about some of the research they were doing. And I started visiting uh, veterans all over the country, really all over the world, and art therapy programs all over the world. And I realized that I could really bring attention to this. And what I started seeing was these veterans would say to me, I don't go to that dark place anymore. And they would tell me, like Christo from Tampa, great Marine, he said to me, you know, I tried everything and nothing was helping me. And my life was falling apart. My marriage was falling apart. And finally I said, okay, I'll do art therapy. But art therapy sounds like, you know, arts and crafts. And, you know, these tough Marines, they, they don't want to do, you know, arts and crafts. <laughs> And he tried art therapy, and he said, it saved my life, it saved my marriage, and now he runs a workshop for vets uh, doing glass blowing in Tampa. And so I started hearing these same stories from vets all over the country, and, and I really felt like this is something that I can really champion. But meanwhile, I had... Since I was doing some work with vets, a lot of veterans groups and veterans initiatives were coming to me and saying, would you champion our veteran initiative? And would you champion this vet program? And would you champion that vet program? And I started realizing it's really our military spouses who don't seem to have one strong advocate. And there are groups that are helping them, but I felt like they really needed uh, help. And so I went around and I had several listening sessions all over the country, listening sessions with spouses in, in every single branch. And I said, don't give me a laundry list. Give me one thing. If there's one thing I could do to help support military spouses, what would it be? And the thing that kept surfacing over and over and over uh, was uh, uh, being able to have licensure, being able to have employment. And uh, I know I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but that's kind of what got me involved with the military. And um, I started realizing, you know, we ask these military families to move. And yet every time they move, these spouses who are highly educated, highly trained, ready to work, wanting to work, all of a sudden don't have a job. And wherever they move, they have to get a new license. Uh, They have to wait till they move in so they can show this is my address. They have to get training. They have to pay a fee. By the time they get all of that done, they're usually moving again. And it's very, very frustrating for our military spouses. So um, I've been pleased to be able to uh, make a difference with the military spouses. But but that's kind of what got me um, involved with the military. You, know, you talk about your work with art therapy um, and helping veterans suffering from post-traumatic stress and mental health struggles. Suicide is a national public health problem you know, that in turn requires national approach to dealing with it. And certainly in today's world of COVID-19. What can everyday Americans do in their own communities to prevent veteran suicide and really suicide in general? You know, that's a great question because um, I kind of feel, Chris, like um, this pandemic has focused everybody on mental health. And so I feel like it's an opportunity for us 
to talk about the stigma of mental health. And um, one thing I've learned uh, is that everybody has risk factors and everybody has what we call protective factors. Um, And so I feel like right now is an opportunity for us to talk about mental health. Um, It's an opportunity to say, it's okay to say you're not okay. Um, You know, especially during COVID-19, we know that everybody's feeling a sense of anxiety, a sense of fear, a sense of isolation, and those are all risk factors. And anybody can feel those. And so I feel like right now it's a chance to say, reach out to those you know who might be struggling and uh, have these conversations um, and be willing to say, you know, I had a rough day today too. And, you know, what are you doing today to help? You know, what are you cooking? Are you reading a good book? Did you take a walk today? Things that we know improve our mental health. And so um, I feel like one of the best things we can do, Chris, is start the conversation and to say, uh, you know, if you notice someone just is off, they're not quite themselves, reach out to them and, and say, it's okay to say you're not okay. What can I do to help? And sometimes just starting the conversation and letting people know it's okay to say you're struggling um, kind of starts them on the road to healing. And so more than anything, we want everyday Americans to be able to have these conversations. Yeah, you mentioned stigma. Uh, you know, there have been several articles posted or written in the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, LA Times, that roughly 33 to 40% of Americans are all feeling some sort of anxiety and stress right now. And again, going back to stigma, that's just those who are admitting to feeling something right now. And so obviously that number is significantly higher. Uh, So appreciate you using the word stigma and and breaking down those barriers. You also mentioned the words reach out. Uh, That Mm -hmm. goes into our next line of questioning here. Uh, You you serve as the lead ambassador for the president's roadmap to empower veterans and then the National Tragedy for Suicide Task Force, or PREVENTS as it's called. Can you first Mm -hmm. please tell us about the initiatives of PREVENTS to combat veteran suicide? Well, you know, I think, honestly, I think the reason that the president asked me to be lead ambassador is because I'd done so much work with the art therapy uh, and PTSD. And so um, I was honored when he asked me to do that. And the first thing I did was, you know, I'm not an expert on suicide. And so the first thing I did was to invite a lot of the people who are involved in the task force to the vice president's residence and had a lunch, and I said, okay, fill me in, train me, pour into me, tell me tell me everything that I should know about suicide. And one of the things that surprised me the most, Chris, is that suicide is preventable. I mean, it was stunning to me. And, and there were so many facts that I learned from this group of experts that uh, inspired me and made me realize, you know, we can really make a difference. One of the things about the PREVENTS task force is that all of these groups are now working together. And um, some of the things that they've shared have just been uh, amazing. And one of the things, we just started this, um, this campaign called REACH, it really just means reach out to those who you know might be struggling and reach out if you yourself are struggling. And I think the more we have these conversations and the more we say, you know, there's, 
we don't want any stigma attached, uh, the more we're going to be able to make a difference and the more lives we're going to be able to save. And especially in the military, as you probably well know, in the military, we feel like our vets and our military service members are afraid to say, I'm struggling right now. I need help. And so what's been inspiring to me is to see some of these higher level military officers be willing to say, I had to go get help. And now I'm leading a full life in the military and to encourage uh, the people under their command to be willing to say, you know what, I need a break right now. I need I need someone to help me. And so one of the things that we've done is we've gone to VA medical centers. The last about three months, I've been traveling the country and going to these medical centers and seeing some of the things that they're doing for PTSD and some of the things that they're doing actually for suicide prevention. And one of the biggest things that has been so successful is these vets reaching out to other vets. Because it's one thing for Karen Pence to say, suicide is preventable, we're here to help you. But that doesn't make somebody want to call. They're like, well, Karen Pence doesn't know what it's like to be in combat. And so we've, we've seen that when the vets, another vet who can say, you know what, I was homeless and I was struggling and my marriage fell apart, and I lost my job, and and I was ready to take my own life. But then I reached out to the VA, and they got me the help that I needed. That's someone that another vet is going to listen to. And so I love the peer-to-peer programs. Um, I also got to speak to some of the responders on the Veterans Crisis Line. And I got to tell you, when, when these, I heard from three different individuals, and when they said to me, this is the highest honor of my life is to answer those phone calls and to walk with these vets until I get, can get them somewhere where they have the help that they need brought me to tears uh, because we owe this to our vets. It's our duty to come alongside them. And it's not their fault that they're struggling with PTSD, that they're having suicidal ideations, that they're struggling to, to get back into normal life. Um, We've kind of put them in that position, and and they've had these experiences in combat. And so now it's our job, it's our duty to come alongside and say, let us help you. Let's hold your hand. Let's get you back to where you are functioning in society. So um, it's been an honor for me to work with these vets. And, and i got to tell you, they're, they're so willing to be vulnerable and share their stories, and it's really been inspirational for me. Uh, thank you for that. And as you know, the show is based on empowerment and well-being. And the first guest we had on the mm-hmm. show w- was Dr. Barbara Van Dalen, the executive director of the task force. And so we're really trying to, to help amplify the message of both the task force and the, the REACH campaign. So thank you for sharing that and those insights. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we've talked about all the causes that you're currently involved in. You're, you're doing so much to, to support them in, in many different facets and avenues. As you look into the next year and beyond, are there other initiatives and issues that you're looking forward to supporting? You know, I'm looking at that right now. I'm I'm trying to actually uh, prayerfully consider it and and think through. Um, you know, what's my next step? Um, you know, especially with our military spouses, um, I don't want to let go of that initiative. I I want to kind of think through what else can we do? Uh, what what's the next level that we can take that to? We've had a lot of success with the military spouses. Um, 
uh, in the administration. You know, the president signed an executive order, and he asked for the federal agencies to try and find ways to hire military spouses. And then my office, we've had a couple of uh, business I guess you'd call them kind of like symposiums where we've had business leaders from around the country get together and brainstorm about ways to hire military spouses. Um, we've worked a lot with the Small Business Association. We've worked with Hiring Our Heroes. And um, we've had the opportunity to go visit some of these military spouse-owned businesses. And one of the things that, you know, um, again, I know this pandemic is terrible, But one of the things that I think a lot of us have realized is that there are ways to work virtually, and there might be some new opportunities for our military spouses uh, because businesses are starting to say, how can we have our workforce work from home and still accomplish uh, the goals in our business? And military spouses are perfect for that because every time they move, they wouldn't have to change jobs. They'd be able to keep the job that they have. So there are a lot of different things um, that we're trying to do, you know, actual tangible things where we can say, okay, here's a a way we can help military spouses. Uh, We were in Arizona last week, and Governor Ducey was the very first one who said um, in Arizona, and this is not just for military spouses, although I I spoke to him about this early on uh, being second lady, and he said, let me see what we can do in our state. But he did this for for anyone in Arizona. Their licenses under certain conditions have reciprocity with any other state. And so Arizona is a state a lot of military families uh, like to retire to because these spouses can can keep their uh, position. They can keep their licenses. Um, another thing that just uh, happened with the uh, National Defense Authorization Act, the president empowered the Department of Defense. Uh, so the Secretary of Defense now has the authority to fund interstate compacts. So in other words, if you are uh, a dental hygienist in one state and you move um, You know, as I said before, these spouses sometimes have to go through more education training, they have to pay the fee, they have to get a new license, and now uh, the Secretary of Defense can fund those interstate compacts because a lot of states were saying, you know what, I can't let them just have their license in our state. I mean, that's the way our state, you know, makes income. That's one of the fees that we charge. That's what we do. And that's how our state gets income. And so now it's exciting for us to know that uh, the Secretary of Defense could help fund those interstate compacts. And it's just some of the things that we're doing, but there are very specific things that we can do to help our military spouses. So um, we're looking at kind of the next level. How can we step that up a little bit? And um, we've we've had the privilege of doing, um, you know, a, there was a virtual training session just, I think, two weeks ago uh, where I kind of did the welcoming virtually for that, which was, um, the Small Business Administration showing military spouses how they can be entrepreneurs and what would what's the next step they would say take if they have a business idea that they want to start. And so that was exciting. So there are a lot of things that we can still do for our military spouses because, you know, Chris, they serve too. And they make a lot of sacrifices. I like to call them our home front heroes. Um, but 
you know, it's also a good thing for our military to keep our spouses happy and to help them have a fulfilling uh, career as well. And the longer their spouse stays in the military, um, you know, the better prepared we are. But it's just the right thing to do to come alongside our military spouses and say, you know, you've trained, you've got your bachelor's degree, your master's degree, maybe your law degree, or your teacher, a dentist, and and you have to move all the time, how can we come alongside and make sure that you don't have to give up your identity and your career? So um, it's been very rewarding. We've made so many, uh, we've had so many accomplishments uh, helping our military spouses, but we have a long way to go. So um, there's a lot more for us to do, and we're eager to do it. Looking forward to that next chapter. Mrs. Karen Pence, (laughs) Second Lady of the United States, Thank you so, so very much for being on Next Steps Forward today. We'll be right back with our next guest. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you ever feel that life is overwhelming and your thoughts are all over the place? Do you always think you need more but feel less satisfied no matter what? Are you looking for a little bit of clarity and peace and a whole lot of joy and playfulness? Join Jan Christensen and Marnix Powells as they reveal the secret of the human experience to help you find your magnificent mind. A Magnificent Mind airs Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you really want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune into Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions. Some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to one 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. Or send an email to Chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. All right. Welcome back to Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. And our second guest today is Richard Casper. Richard and I met a few years ago while both of us were participating in a leadership development program. I'm proud to say that we quickly became very good friends, in part because of our commitment to the common cause of helping military veterans take their next steps forward, and in part because, quite frankly, as you'll see in a moment here, he's just a, a really a great guy all around uh, that anyone would want to have as a friend. Richard Casper is co-founder of Creative Vets and currently serves as the executive director of the Nashville-based nonprofit organization. Casper served four years as an infantryman in the United States Marine Corps with a combat deployment in Fallujah, Iraq. During his deployment, he was hit by four IEDs in just four short months, causing him to suffer from a traumatic brain injury. Upon returning home, Richard found it hard to adjust and suffered from post-traumatic stress until he discovered the healing power of music and art. After experiencing firsthand the impact music and art had on his own recovery, he co-founded Creative Vets to help other veterans who are suffering. Richard, thanks for being here with us today. 
Hey, thank you so much for having me. So you know, we just heard Mrs. Pence talk about art and therapy. And I know there's a, a difference between what she's focused on and, and what Creative Vets is. But let's talk a little bit about you first, and then we'll get into the creation of Creative Vets, the work you're doing there, uh, and the, the results that you're seeing. So would you share with our listeners, you know, first of all, why you enlisted in the Marines uh, and your tours of duty in Iraq, please? Yeah, I mean, I enlisted in 2003, and that was actually straight out of high school. So I was a senior in 2003. Um, previous to that, I always knew I was going to join the military. I had this sense of calling inside me. And my dad's one of 11, and every one of his siblings, brothers have uh, served in some branch, except for the Marine Corps. And so I was still kind of undecided. But when 9-11 hit, uh, I was just getting into my junior year. And it just something switched inside of me from like the service to like, I've, I've got to be over there. I got to do this. This is just the timing that's happening, me graduating and everything happening. Um, I just needed to be there. So I decided at that moment I was going to go Marine Corps infantry and just sh- shot straight out to boot camp two weeks uh, after uh, my, my senior graduation. <laughs> so it was pretty insane. So much for summer vacation, two weeks. I know. That pretty was impressive. Duty calls. Yeah. Duty calls. Well, again, you know, thank you for your service, sir. Thank you. Yeah, and we mentioned briefly in the beginning of the show that you suffered a traumatic brain injury and that both music and art were sources of healing for you. When you and I spoke before the show uh, a couple days ago, you called yourself, and I love this, a six foot five, cowboy boots wearing, Harley riding, Marine grunt. <laughs> now, to me and our listeners, you know, that doesn't really sound like someone who'd be interested in art. You know, what made you take that step? And you, quite frankly, how did it contribute to your recovery from your injuries? Yeah, my, my, uh, I love that term too, because it was actually my creative writing teacher that told me that one time. He's, he's like, I just love you. He's like, you're in this creative writing class and you're a six foot five combat boot wearing Marie. Uh, it was just awesome. But uh, my, my path to art was very unconventional. It wasn't something normal. I was decent at drawing via doodling and doing stuff in high school. And so that's just important for the, the part of the story when I, I transitioned the arts. And so I go to the Marine Corps just like, you know, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to fight. I get injured. And also my buddy was shot and killed beside me. So I'm suffering with post-traumatic stress and TBI. So when I transition out of the Marine Corps, I, I still don't know there's a problem because when I was in Bala or when I was in Fallujah, after the fourth time I was hit, they considered me unfit for duty. So I couldn't do my job anymore, but they kept me at Camp Fallujah. They talked about sending me to Bilal to get a CAT scan, never happened. So I pretty much stayed on base for about three months where I legitimately didn't have to use my brain. So I, besides the migraines and the headaches, I didn't know I actually had a problem. So this is back in 2007 when uh, TBI, PTS wasn't a big thing. So the moment I touched down from Iraq, I was already checking out of the Marine Corps. Like I was signing the papers. They asked, do you need to see medical? I said, no, I don't think so. You probably would have sent me if, if I needed it. Um, so I just get out because I'm young and dumb, just ready to like run out into the world. And uh, I take about six months off. I take that same Harley to Sturgis and I go all around. I live life because obviously I almost died so many times. I was excited to live life a little bit. And then I get back to it. And I'm like, okay, Richard, what are we going to do next? We're going to be, let's study business and let's start at a local community college, do two years there, get all the uh, credits I need to get, then go to a four-year state college somewhere in Illinois where I'm from. And uh, right away, within the first few months of going back to school, all these symptoms started coming back. You're looking at a guy who, a class clown, prom king, combat veteran, could do anything in front of anybody. But all of a sudden, now I'm back at school. I had to do one-on-one speeches with my speech teacher. That's how bad my anxieties and depression were. I couldn't get up in front of these kids, 18, 19-year-old kids. I couldn't stand up in front of them and just talk about a story I just wrote. 
my anxieties and depression got so bad that I was, and I say this a lot, that if zero was killing myself and a hundred was me before war, I was at a nine because I did not know what to do with my life. I, I went to the VA. That's when they diagnosed me with my left traumatic brain injury with PTS, with a ton of other issues, tinnitus, TMJ, just all the things just from the constant explosions. And I was at the end of my rope and I said, you know what? I've always been optimistic about my life. I said, how do I, how do I adapt to this? How do I adapt to not being able to learn new technical skills and to have a short-term memory issue? What should I do? And I said, you know what? I'm just going to lean in and try to get a degree in anything and then try from there to go out into the world and get a job. Um, and so I decided just to do art. I said, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to get an easy degree in art. That's my thought process. Uh, and I go into there, into the first art class drawing, and I'm starting to do really good at just drawing things. And inside of me, I had this passion that I needed to get out uh, via my buddy who was shot and killed beside me. I needed, I needed to tell his story but I didn't have the words to tell his story. I didn't want to tell his story. Nobody likes to see a six foot five Marine cry. So I didn't want to do that in front of people. I didn't want to see it. And so I was in a drawing class. I said, you know what? I'm just going to do this for myself. I have this photo of me at my gunner's grave. I go to Houston, Texas every single year I have ever since uh, he was shot and killed and visit his family in his grave. And I have this tattoo on my arm uh, that has his name and his angel wings and cross. And I have this photo that my uncle took me at his grave. And I said, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to do chalk pastel. I'm going to color this whole thing in the way it's supposed to be. And I get to the point to where I have my skin tones colored in. I have my cami shorts colored in. I have a headstone. The only thing not colored in yet was the background, which is grass. So green. But that's not what I did because the teacher came around and he said, Richard, and he knew I had issues because I had to tell him about my disabilities beforehand. And he knew I was a Marine Corps, but he didn't do anything else. He said, obviously, this is important to you. This is you in this piece. I want, I want you to not do the grass green. I want you to do any other color outside of that that evokes an emotion inside of you so that when you put this piece up, people around you when you're not here will know that you as the artist made this drawing, painting, whatever you want to call it. And they'll also know what kind of emotion you felt in the situation. And I was like, well, that sounds dumb. Like this is a really good piece of art. I don't want, I don't want to mess it up by throwing in a random color. But I, as a good Marine, I just said, you know what? I'm going to do this. And I decided to do everything in red, just the whole background. Again, not really knowing why. And uh, in the art world too, something else I didn't know, you have to do critiques. And so I put my art on the wall. They're like, Richard, do you want to talk about your piece? So I was like, heck no, I'm not going to talk about my piece. Uh, they're like, students, what do you think about Richard's piece? And I said, I think you put red in there because you saw him die. You saw his blood. I think you put red in there because you're mad that he died. I think you put red in there because you loved him. All these things that just made sense to me. And I almost started bawling right there. And I said, how do these kids who have no life experience in the military or know my story understand me with one small color change? What is this? And that's what led me down the path of learning how to use this symbols, colors, and things to keep on healing. Well, that discovery obviously seemed to truly change your life overnight. You talked about zero to 100 and nine to 85. And obviously it led you to co-found Creative Vets. Your mission in so many words is to transition veterans from using a warrior brain to developing an artist brain. Can you tell our listeners about the unique services that Creative Vets provides to programs and what, you know, putting your own experiences aside, I guess, you know, what made you think that such an organization like this would take off? Yeah, well, this this idea of warrior brain to artist brain kind of came through after after I graduated, and like you said, I I went I went from that nine to an eighty five, which means I was back in life. I was able to talk about it, and that was all because 
this, this art path I took over four years was just, it was all about diving into my subconscious, realizing why I felt the way I did, why I got anxiety at certain times. My artist brain would kick in. When I was, so as an example, as a warrior driving down the road to class, I'm getting anxiety. I'm throwing up. I'm like, I'm not sure why I feel all this anxiety. My subconscious this whole time is picking up everything on the side of the road as bombs because obviously I was blown up so many times. The forefront of my brain is just like, I'm going to school. I'm going to school. It's not thinking about it. So when my subconscious starts creeping in, it's making my whole body react. And my brain is saying, why are you reacting this way? You've been to combat. You've served. You could do anything. Why are you such like, why are you losing it? And that's where the artist brain comes in. Because the moment I became an artist, I understood that I picked up all these things on the side of the road. And I said, what if I took a photograph of everything I saw on the side of the road and I did a gallery show and I could show people what it's like to walk through my shoes, to, to see the stuff I did. The moment I did that, all of a sudden that went away. That anxiety went away. I was like, what, what, what just happened? Well, I found my why, like why I was getting anxiety. And then I placed something on it and I conquered it. And I talk about this all the time. If you have a room full of people, and I was like, Chris, one of the people in this room is going to try to attack you. You're going to be anxious. You're going to be scared. You're going to be hypervigilant. You're not going to know who did it. But the moment I say, hey, that person in the back over there, that's the one that's going to attack you. All of a sudden, you can control what you do from there. You could say you're, you got, you're like, okay, I can go to this door. I can exit. I can go attack. All of a sudden, you're in control. And that's ultimately what the warrior brain to artist brain transition is doing in these veterans. So that is, uh, that's how it came to be. So now the programs for creative events. When I was, when I first grad or when I graduated and I looked back and said, does anything like this exist? It doesn't. There are a lot of art therapy programs. There are a lot of really good stuff. But the issue is out of the 20 suicides a day, 14 of those 20 don't even seek help. So that word therapy, they might not even go into the doors to see that it actually will help them. So I knew I had to design a program that would allow those 14 veterans, all 20 hopefully, but mainly those 14 to reach out and want to come through art, want to do music. And I said, how can I, how can I actually make this happen? So I said, I need to, I need to check off some boxes. For me, I needed a battle buddy. I would call my friend. When I had a really bad issue with PTS, I remember calling my buddy Jeremy and I was like crying in a cornfield, not understanding why I was crying. And he talked me off the ledge pretty much. And I said, so let's have a battle buddy that's going to be with the veteran every step of the way. Let's make sure that their anxieties, depression, everything that holds them back is outweighed by the excitement and the experience. But also let's make sure the programs are good enough to make sure that we can heal them. And then last thing, because a lot of it, veterans uh, suffer with financial problems is I wanted to make sure everything paid for. So I call those friction points. I wanted to take away every single friction point to veterans saying, no, I can't seek help. So right now our, our major programs, which have been so successful and we've had a hundred percent like rate of veterans who've got on, like get on the plane and actually come out, which is pretty exciting. Um, we do a three-week fully accredited art program at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. So we're treating the veterans like students. We're using cultural competency in that we have a veteran, wounded veteran teacher who's in the class with them. We do one-on-one -on -one instruction on their personal piece of art, but through the three weeks, they're learning about 3D printing, about ceramics, about woodworking, about metals, trying to find them uh, something to fall in love with so they continue their project. They're working in a group, learning individually. And then at the end of the three weeks, we have a full-on gallery showing where civilians and other people get to come in and see their pieces. And sometimes for the first time ever, those veterans are talking just like I did about their story, about their piece of art and putting it up there. So 
we pay for everything, their tuition, their housing, their food, their flights. And it's, it's just one of the most amazing programs I've seen. And uh, that's, that's for art. And we've done that program actually at the University of Southern California and at Virginia Commonwealth University. So we love adapting that to, to new schools just all around the country because you never know where a veteran's going to be excited to go. Maybe there's a huge Alabama fan that, you know, he won't do anything other, but if all of a sudden we associated with them and put a program there, we save that veteran's life just by association with them. So we really try to be really strong about our strategic partnerships, making sure we're going after the top of the top, not just doing an art program at a community college. We're doing an art program at the number one art school in the country. Um, on the opposite side of that is our songwriting, where we fly, same thing, veterans from anywhere in the country, pay for their flights, their food, their housing, fly them to Nashville. They get to write their story backstage at the Grand Old Opry with number one or pro songwriters. I mean, talk about a bucket list item and tell me one veteran that would be like, no, I don't want to go to Nashville and write with a hit song or everything paid for. Um, and, but this, what's happening in these sessions is so powerful. So many people are like, well, yeah, you're just doing songwriting. No, we're legitimately repurposing these memories. We're taking these memories when, when these veterans, if they were seeing a psychiatrist or anybody else talking about it, they'd be reliving these moments and they would talk about ways to get over them after that we're doing is we're reliving these moments, but then when we're coming out of those, we have a song that they're so excited about that they share it with their wife and their family, something that they never talked about before. They're now sending to everyone they know. So what happens is that excitement all of a sudden replaces that negative energy. So when they go on and they rethink about the situation in Iraq, they actually think about their writing experience and it's a good experience. Um, so those are our two major programs, but obviously because of funding, we can't get all the veterans to these programs. So we open up community programs, online programs, partnerships with Country Music Hall of Fame to do online songwriting programs. Legitimately anything to do with the arts, we're gonna dive into. Uh, we have a partnership with the Dallas Museum of Art. Uh, we have an art box program. So everything in the arts. <laughs> well, Richard, you know, before today, I didn't get to see any of your artwork other than your tattoo, uh, but I have had the privilege of, of hearing your, some of your songs. Uh, with a few minutes left in the show here, you know, you're telling me the last time we spoke that Creative Vets, you think is the only first nonprofit that's gotten a record deal. You know, recently <laughs> yeah. Creative Vets signed a big deal with Big Machine Records in Nashville. You know, how did that happen? So that was kind of insane how that happened. It's technically, I say it's a record deal because the resources they're putting behind us, we signed an administration deal with them, which is how, so we're not a big enough nonprofit to do royalties, to do collections, to do all that stuff. It's a whole nother world, a whole nother issue. You need lots of lawyers, lots of stuff. Um, and so we, I knew I needed a strategic partner and I was able to, to, to meet with Scott Bruschetta because he gave a million dollars towards Music Has Value, which is going back towards music programming. And he's also the CEO of Big Machine Records. And instead of asking for money in the meeting, I said, what I really need is a partnership. We have over 108 veteran songs written, recorded that need to be released to the veteran community. They need to hear these songs. Veterans families need to hear these songs because it's their voice. If you partner with us, we're going to be able to do this. We're going to be able to release this music to the world. Um, and so it was a strategic conversation that I knew I was going to go into with this big ask. And I mean, Scott was just all on board. He said, yes, I think this is important for all the veterans. I think this is important for the company just to get behind and they're, they're becoming our champion. And so when we have these calls, when we release this music, every one of their team members is on this call. So it's not just a normal administration deal. It's legitimately, they're, they're treating us like an actual artist. Um, and our songs are out now on, on uh, all the streaming platforms. So if you search veteran songs, creative ads, you'll hear 11 songs written by veterans 
for veterans. And we have another release coming up November 6th. Richard, I'm sorry we're out of time here today. You know, we definitely have to have you back on the show. Yeah, I love it. Uh, congratulations on all your success. It's phenomenal. Again, thank you for your service. You're truly an inspiration to many out there. Other uh, six foot five cowboy boot wearing, <laughs> art loving, uh, Harley ride Marine Corps grunts. So I uh, truly appreciate that. You know, so thank you. We'll get you back here again. Thank you so much. I'm Chris Meek. We'll be back next Tuesday with another leader from the world of business, politics, sports, entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.